Turn your Bibles over to the seventh chapter of Romans. Our text will start at verse 7. But before then, I'll read some statements in the fourth, fifth, and maybe also the sixth chapter. And before getting into it, give you a little bit of introduction to fully appreciate, I think, what Paul is, is trying to do in, in this book. In fact, uh, Paul does this somewhat in all of his books, uh, all his letters, but he does it entirely in, in the book that we're studying from. Teachers, when they go to school and take courses that are designed to help them communicate information to students at their various level. Obviously, if you're communicating information to a second grader, you're going to do it different than to a fourth or a fifth grader. And obviously, when you're communicating information of complications such as algebra or other material, there is a starting point before you reach a certain difficult level. One of the things that teachers are taught in the psychology of the human mind and the way in which we learn is that the first step in the learning process uh, is just simply learning basic facts. Uh, a child starts off in the first grade, he learns his ABCs, uh, learns numbers, he learns certain words. And so the first step in the learning process is just simply the learning of certain facts. The second step in learning process uh, is comprehension, where you learn to take uh, groups of facts and put them together and then comprehend the information. Take all of the various individual meanings of these words, put them together, and comprehend information. And so the child moves from just learning words and sentences to the ability to read a paragraph and to put these words together and to comprehend. Then the child moves on up to the, the area of application where, where they not only can learn this information and comprehend it to a certain level, but then can make application of the information itself and to apply it. After and only after a person has reached the point where he has applied the information, is he ready to do such sophisticated reasoning as to analyze what it is he has comprehended and what it is that he has applied and what it is that's involved in the in little more of the picture there? And so he can now stand back and, and analyze this information and come to a better understanding. At the very height of the learning process, we have what we call the synthesis of information. And this is where a person learns to not only read that paragraph, but he reads that paragraph from within the setting of an entire book. And he reads the book from within the setting of the life and the personality of the author. And he reads the book from the setting within the life and the personality of the author from within a certain historical situation and from within a certain world framework. And now, understanding the world framework, the author, his personality, the language, the culture, and then the various terms of comprehension of the book, the person can have his highest level of understanding. Thus, as a person proceeds through our formal school system, when he reaches the graduate level, uh, he goes through four years of college, then if he goes on to the graduate level, virtually all learning at the graduate level is of the synthesis nature, where they are constantly taking facts that they already know, comprehensions that they already have, applications that they have already experienced. And they are learning to pool all of this information together and use it in the big picture. 
Okay. When we come to Romans, remember Peter made the observation himself that many of the things that Paul wrote are hard to be understood. And he said the unlearned twist it as they do the rest of the scriptures to their own destruction. All right, Peter, referring to the letters of Paul, makes the statement that there is a difficulty factor involved in Paul's letter. I'll show you the difference now with what we're looking at in Romans as applied as compared to what has come earlier. In the Gospels, what you have by the four authors is basically statements of fact about Jesus, records of what they see with their own eyes, records of what they hear with their own ears. And you have a certain level, but not really a high degree of level, of interpretation and evaluation of this information. You have mostly the statements of historical fact and a record of what he says. Uh, books have been written trying to deal with the comprehension of the Sermon on the Mount, some very plain, direct statements that Jesus made in a short period of time. As you move through the book of Acts, you have historical facts, events happening, people acquiring a certain level of comprehension, and then applying that comprehension. Uh, for example, on the day of Pentecost, the people hear a sermon. They're convinced in that sermon that Jesus is the Messiah. Uh, they have, the speakers there have taken prophecies that these people already knew, and events that they were already familiar with. And they took those events and prophecies, put them together, put two and two together in the minds of those people, caused them to have a much higher level of understanding, and they wind up saying, many brethren, what shall we do? And then we find their act of obedience. But as we end even in the book of Acts, it becomes obvious throughout the book of Acts that as these people with a certain level of comprehension, a certain level of understanding become Christians, that there's many things they don't understand. We see it in the fact that they argue and debate over so many things. For example, here are Jews that have been Christians for a number of years and who obviously do not understand uh, concerning the law of Moses and its relationship to salvation. Jews who have problems with Gentiles not being circumcised and yet being recognized as in a covenant relationship with God. Jews who have problems with Gentiles who are not being told to keep certain days and things of this nature. Jews who are having problems taking these facts of the law of Moses that they had practiced and doing with them what the Hebrew writer does, and that is comprehending them as part of a big picture that pointed to the Messiah and will culminate. We see Gentiles who have a certain background, who have embraced evidence concerning Christ and have responded to it, but are having difficulties in making this transition from this pagan world that they have lived in and geared their lives into the spirituality uh, and the way of life that they're supposed to have in Christ. Now, having observed the facts and a certain level of comprehension that we have in the, in the Gospels and, uh, and in Acts, Paul writes Romans to a group of people that are Christians and they've obeyed the gospel and they have certain levels of understanding and it becomes the one book of the New Testament set forth to explain in its entirety uh, the Christian system. The difficulty lies in the fact that if you have not familiarized yourself with these other materials, don't sit down and read Romans. 
Because Paul is going to assume that you know the law and that you know Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and the information therein. And then you know the material that's in the book of Acts. He's going to assume that. And he's going to stand back and bring all of that information together and try to get you to see the entire picture in such a way that you not only are applying certain things, but Paul wants you to understand it. He doesn't want you, just for example, to be immersed or baptized into Christ. He wants you to understand it and to understand the process. He doesn't want you just to, to walk uh, with Christ and, and to have the law and to have this relationship you have in the church. He wants you to understand it. He wants you to take grace and law and faith and unite them all together and to synthesize it in your mind so that there's no contradiction. People in Christianity who have problems with grace and law, as we all do for anywhere along the way when you first become a Christian, have problems because we have not yet synthesized it all together. We've got grace over here and we've got law there. In fact, uh, most of the, uh, the sermons that I heard in my early years on grace could not be preached without the word but. You know, we talk about grace for a little bit and then but, and we didn't want to get anybody, give anybody the idea that they could be wrong on any point and, and be saved by this unmerited thing we talked about over here. And so the, the, they were all reconciled with this word but, and then we went on to this over here. Well, Paul doesn't need a but. He brings grace and law and faith all together, synthesizes the information so that it can be understood. And so with that background, we step into the book of Romans. We want to understand ourselves. We want to understand the law. We want to understand Jesus. We want to understand the salvation that we have in him. And we want to understand how that we can strive to be good, fall short, and be justified. But from within that framework, we want to also understand, and Paul wants to convey, how that there is no way provided here where a person, because of some belief in Jesus, can just walk around in, in sin and, and be saved because of the grace of God. And he's going to clarify all of this. There are all kinds of questions that have come to people's mind as they've evaluated grace and, and faith and law and and Gentile, and Jew, and men, and women, in salvation, Paul is going to try and pull it together so that we can synthesize that material in our mind and understand it. All right, first, in the fourth chapter, up to this point, Paul has nailed down the fact that everybody is lost because they deserve to be lost. Everybody's dying because they deserve to die. Death passed to all men because all have sinned, Paul has stated. The Gentile is going to die because he's sinned and he's broken God's law. He has no excuse. His own conscience has stood as his condemner. He hasn't even lived up to what he's been able to figure out in his own conscience, in his own mind. The Jew has the law, but he knows he stands condemned. He knows at his best he hasn't kept it. And so now having arrived that everybody is a sinner, we come to a statement here that was a problem to the Jew and his covenant relationship with God. And, and this basis of being justified with God, and we step in in the fourth chapter, uh, what then are we to say was gained by Abraham, our ancestor, according to the flesh? If Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. But what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him for righteousness. 
Now to one who works, wages are not reckoned as a gift, but something due. But to one who without works trusts him who justifies the ungodly, such faith is reckoned as righteousness. So also David speaks of the blessedness of those to whom God reckons righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose iniquities are forgiven, to those whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one against whom the Lord will not reckon sin. Is this blamelessness then pronounced only on the circumcised or also on the uncircumcised? In other words, is it only on the Jew or is it also on the non-Jew? We say faith was reckoned to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it reckoned to him? Was it before he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the ancestor of all who believe without being circumcised and thus to have righteousness reckoned to them. So notice what he says. The Jew is said, hey, Abraham was circumcised. There's no way, and the promise was made to Abraham that all the nations would be blessed through him. And you can go back and read the, the 17th chapter of Genesis and see the command of Abraham to circumcise himself and his family. And he circumcised himself and his family and all the males within his family, even down to the slaves. And he couldn't have been acceptable to God or pleasing without doing that. And that physical act of circumcision was a sign of the covenant between God and Israel. All right, what has happened is the Jews had put all the emphasis on that physical sign, that physical symbol. And, and they had problems acknowledging anybody in a covenant relationship, but God is not going to allow that to stand because he doesn't want man to think in any sense that he has earned or deserves any part of his salvation, that man has fallen short, and God doesn't want him out bragging about how good he is. And so Paul says, let's go back and look at Abraham. Was he really saved because of what he did in circumcision? God forbid, if that's the case, then we can save every male pretty quickly. And so he says, no, he wasn't saved. What caused Abraham to obey God and be circumcised? It was his faith in God. He was saved at the point of time that he had his faith in God before his circumcision. That faith then manifested itself, and then he was circumcised. So he says, when you look at circumcision, what you really see is not the salvation of Abraham. What you really see is the faith of Abraham that is being manifested in obedience to God. But the salvation took place in his heart at the point of time that he put his trust in God and God reckoning salvation to him. And so he's saying to these Jews, listen, that Gentile out there who is uncircumcised, what is really important is the faith that he has in his heart. Notice what Paul has said earlier on that area in Romans, the second chapter, beginning with verse 28 and 29. For a person is not a Jew who is one outwardly, in other words, circumcision of the flesh. That doesn't make you a Jew. Nor is it true circumcision is something external or physical. Rather, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly. And real circumcision is a matter of the heart. It's spiritual and not literal. Such a person receives praise from, not from others, but from God. Circumcision, any physical act, can only be a symbol of a spiritual truth. What is important 
Paul is going to say is the understanding of that spiritual truth in your heart. We're going to take the Lord's Supper. What is pleasing to God is if while we're partaking of the Supper, in your heart, in your mind, you believe that Jesus died and suffered from you and rose from the dead, and that he offered himself as a sacrifice for your sins. You believe that. You know it. You understand it. And you believe that that bread is symbolic of his body, and that fruit of the vine is symbolic of the blood that he shed. And so when you eat that bread, you're not sitting there saying, hey, God, aren't you pleased with me? I'm eating a little unleavened bread on Sunday morning. Or you're drinking that wine, and you're not saying, God, aren't you pleased with me? Hey, I'm doing this on Sunday morning, taking a little fruit of the vine. That's absurd. What God is pleased with is that in your heart, you believe that Jesus Christ died for your sins, gave himself as a sacrifice for you, was raised from the dead, and what we have in the Lord's Supper is the outward manifestation of your faith. And so others see you partaking of the Lord's Supper. A visitor walks in, and he sees you partake of a little fruit juice and cracker. He doesn't appreciate what's going on unless he understands what you have in your heart. And so what he sees is the expression of the faith you have in your heart. What God sees is what you have in your heart. When you're immersed in water and you're baptized, God forbid that any of us would have an understanding that there's anything about water that saves anybody, or that God's going to save you because you're immersed in water. God forbid, if that's the case, let's get out there and dunk everybody. That's not it. Peter said, Baptism doth also now save us, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the interrogation of the good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so, if when you go into the water, in your heart, in your heart, you believe that Jesus died for your sins and was raised by God, and that he gave himself as a sacrifice for your sins, and that's in your mind. And so you're going to make your appeal to a clear conscience before God by having Jesus wipe all your sins away as a result of your trust in him. And you're thinking of that act as your identification with his death, burial, and resurrection. Then when you're baptized, what I see is the expression of your faith. You see, I cannot see your faith in your heart. God can. All I can see is the expression of the faith. And so I see the expression. You express the faith. But what is essential and what is important is the faith you have in your heart. Then that faith is expressed. I don't know how many times over the years we have persuaded somebody to be immersed who had never repented and never died to sin and never identified themselves with the Lord, and it was obvious by the life they lived after they came up out of the water. And so the water becomes an expression in a physical way designed by God. He chose it. But it expresses a faith in the heart, just as the Lord's Supper expresses a faith that is in the heart, just as circumcision. Don't you see what the Jew had did? The Jew had did with circumcision and the same thing that, the same thing that a lot of Christians have done with the Sabbath day or certain ways of dressing or certain rites or certain rituals. God's pleased with me because I do this. I'm going to go to heaven because I do that. Baloney. You're going to go to heaven it's going to go for, be for one reason. 
and that is your trust in the atoning sacrifice of Christ, and we're not going to stand up here in this world or in the next and brag or boast or say that we deserve anything because we don't. Christ died for us. We depend entirely on his sacrifice. And so Paul, dealing with Jews who have put their emphasis on the physical rather than on the heart, is simply saying, hey, you got your emphasis in the wrong place. Let's go back and look at Abraham. Do you honestly believe that God, who knows the human heart, didn't accept Abraham until the day he was circumcised? He said God accepted Abraham when Abraham put his trust in him. And then Abraham expressed that trust. Now, it is true that we didn't know the faith that Abraham had until he obeyed God. And that's true with one another. We don't know the faith that's in a person's heart until it's expressed. I don't know that a person really believes in Jesus and wants to identify with his death and his burial and his resurrection and all until I see him express that faith in the way God asked him to. But God knows the heart. And the salvation is from what takes place in the heart and by the grace of God and not by the work itself. Okay, beginning in verse 5, chapter 5 now. He says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Okay, so we're justified by faith. We now have peace with God. Now, in the sixth chapter, he wants to make it clear that I'm not saying because you're justified by your faith in Christ that, that you can just go out here and sin and God's grace will abound. And so he says in verse 1, what shall we say? What are we to say? Should we continue in sin in order that grace may abound? God forbid, by no means. How can we who died to sin go on living in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore we have been buried with him by baptism into death. So just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. If we have been united with him in his death, like his, we will certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him, so the body of sin might be destroyed. You see what Paul is doing there from the way of Sympathus? On the day of Pentecost, they were told to repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of their sins. And they repented and they were baptized. Paul takes them back. He says, I'm going to, I'm going to tell you the great spiritual truth behind this. The spiritual truth is the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. The spiritual truth is through repentance you have died to the love and practice of sin. You've changed your mind. You've said, God, I've been doing my thing. Now I'm going to do your thing. That's a change of mind. And then in this physical act, you have expressed your faith. And you have identified yourself with his death. And you have identified yourself with his resurrection. What Paul is saying, how can you understand that? And then ask a question like, well, we may, if you're saved by grace through faith, you may as well go ahead and, and sin. God forbid. Since you don't even understand what you're saying. That if you understand salvation, you know that you repent of your sins, you put your trust in the sacrifice of the Lord, and then based on your repentance and your trust, the sins are washed away. He takes them back to a point in time in their own life where they all were immersed, and in that they were picturing a spiritual truth, and that is their identification with the death of Christ and their identification with his, res with his resurrection. And so how can anybody who understands that? Now you show me a person who's baptized and he continues to live a life where he's 
pursuing sin as his master, and I'll show you somebody that thought that he could be immersed in water, believing in Jesus, and be saved, and didn't understand salvation at all. If he understands salvation, he knows that you're not ready to express this unless you understand that you, through repentance, are dying to your sins, and that what you're really expressing is your identification with the death of Jesus and your own death, and then you're coming out of there picturing your resurrection uh, to remission of sins and your hope of eternal life, all in that act. And so Paul says, if you understood spiritually what took place, you wouldn't even ask a question like this. Now, come on to the seventh chapter, the seventh verse. Now Paul has another problem that he's going to deal with. He's dealt with the fact that we, are, we not only are saved by grace through faith, but salvation has to be by grace through faith, okay? We're all in sin. He's dealt with the fact that the physical acts are the expression of the faith that we have in our heart. But now, somebody is sitting back thinking, well, Paul, I, I just don't understand all of this. Then Is the law bad? Is the law sin? Why do we need it? If all it's done is cause us a lot of problems, and, and, and the only way we can be saved is, is through Jesus. Well, now Paul is going to point out, no, there's nothing bad about the law. Let me explain it to you. The law is essential. You, you would have never made the decision to be saved in Christ if you didn't understand the law. The law is still has a part to play in your life. Let me explain it. And so he continues in verse 7. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. If it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said you shall not covet. And so Paul is saying if, if I was driving along on the road and there's no sign posted saying 55 or 60 or whatever miles per hour, then I wouldn't have known exactly what the speed limit was. Oh, I've got my conscience. And so I'd figure out, uh, some, at least according to my thinking, what I thought was a safe speed. But I wouldn't have known exactly. In other words, I might be driving along there and the speed limit maybe is 55 and I'm doing 75 and I'm doing it in all good conscience because I think I can safely do it. But here I am tooling along the road, 75 miles an hour, feeling good. My conscience has not bothered me. Then I hit the sign and it says 55. What happens? Now all of a sudden, hey, I've been breaking the law. You know, I'm, I'm, this is, I'm really breaking the law here. And so now I can't just go along with all good conscience. I become a little apprehensive. Uh, there may be a policeman down the road. I've been breaking the law for a period of time here. Well, what we have there, we might have in any number of areas. And so Paul says, I would not have known what it was to covet if the Lord said you did not said you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity in the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. Apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin revived, and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity in the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. So the law is holy. The commandment is holy and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin, working death through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become, might become sinful beyond measure. Okay, now let's look at this. What is Paul saying? You know, a lot of times when we talk about salvation in Jesus, we sometimes talk about the so-called good moral people in the community that, uh, 
that really don't go to church or anything like that because they, they honestly feel like they're pretty good people. And in fact, they'll sometimes say the ones that are pretty good, hey, I'm as good as anybody going up at the church building, right? And you know what? If they're pretty good people, they're, they're probably right. There's a lot of people out there that, that uh, treat their wives right or are concerned about their children, etc. Et and so they look at that and they feel pretty good at them, about themselves. Why do they feel pretty good about themselves? Because they don't understand God's law. They've never really looked at it. So here I go along, I'm feeling pretty good about myself. And then I, I come to the law, and I'll use the statements by Jesus, because when he was asked what the great law was, he says, love God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul. The second is like unto it, love your neighbor as yourself. And he says, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Uh, love your enemies. Uh, if, if your enemy hungers, feed him. And so, hey, I was feeling pretty good about myself till he said that. And so now I look and I say, hey, do I really love my neighbor exactly as myself? Have I really lived my life in such a way that I love my neighbor exactly as myself? The answer is no, unless I want to lie. Do I really treat everybody exactly the way I want to be treated? Do I go through life, has that been my perfect standard that I always, under every situation, treat everybody just the way I want to be treated? I say, I agree with that. That sounds great. We'll be great to live in if it was all that way. But no, I haven't always done that. Do I love my enemies? Uh, am, do I, am I able to live with my enemies and actually love them and be concerned about their good and, and, and willing to meet their needs and all? Or, or do I kind of, of maybe walk with an attitude of, man, I'd like to see them get what they deserve and I'd like to see them, see them get it socked to them every now and then and I'd like to give them a piece of my mind and, and I just don't want anything to do with them. So I felt pretty good until I come to the law. Because when I compared myself with my fellow man, I didn't seem to be such a bad guy. You know, I mean, other people seem to feel the same as I do about their enemies. Nobody else perfectly loves their neighbor as themselves. Nobody else is going through life treating everybody exactly the way they want to be treated all, all the time. I may not be a perfect husband, but I can look around and I can say, hey, Barbara, look around. This guy over here slaps his wife every other day. This guy over here is running around. Don't complain about me. See, I can look pretty good if I just want to look at some, some others out there, you know, whatever I may be doing wrong, you know. And so we can all do that. So Paul says, the law is intended for life. Keep it perfectly. You live. You deserve to live. You're all right. But he said the law comes, and the end result is it makes us feel lousy. It makes us feel bad about ourselves. Because we look at it and we say, hey, I'm not exactly what God would have me be. You know, I know I lose my temper sometimes when I shouldn't. I know that I don't always say the right thing. I know sometimes that my mate has to be very patient to put up with some of the things I say or do. Oh, I know I haven't always been the absolute perfect father or perfect mother or perfect whatever it is. And so the end result is we now feel guilty and our conscience is bothering us. But do you see the essentiality of the law? You wouldn't feel that guilt. You, you wouldn't feel bad about yourself if you didn't have God's law before you. And so you look at that perfect law, it's essential. It tells you what right is. You don't have to think about it. It's there. It's, it's right. But the end result is it makes you feel bad. 
And so he says, did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. Verse 13, it was sin working death in me. In other words, hey, it's not the law. The law is perfect. I brought death on myself. I broke the law. Nobody twisted my arm and made me hate my enemies. Nobody twisted my arm and made me go through life not treating other people exactly the way I want to be treated. Nobody twisted my arm and, and made me not love my neighbor exactly as myself. Nobody twisted my arm and made me do any of the wrong things I've done in life. And so the problem's not the law, it's good. The problem's right here, it's Paul Cook, or it's Larry, or it's Jack, or it's Herbie, or whoever. We know the law is spiritual, Paul says. Okay, verse 14. But I am of the flesh, sold into slavery, under sin. I do not understand my own actions. I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree that the law is good. Okay, let's back up. Do you see what Paul's saying? He's saying the very fact that you feel bad about yourself after looking at the law. And you said, yes, man, I, I wish I was that type person. You know, I wish that I was exactly like Jesus. The very fact you feel bad about yourself shows how good the law is. And it's right. It just shows you how bad that we really are. I appreciate the statement that I, I think I made last week or the week before last from C.S. Lewis in his book, A Joyful Christian. And it, it just lodged in my mind. He said, nobody, nobody really appreciated the need of salvation by grace through faith until they had tried as hard as they know how to do things exactly right and then realize they fell short. I mean, these people that go through life, it's just like, when I talk about comparison, what is a faithful Christian in the church? Come to services, be a Bible study, don't knock anybody in the head during the week, you're a faithful Christian, right? You feel good about yourself. Because in comparison to others, that's what most people do. They claim to be Christians. Uh, most don't get into that category. But most come to some Bible studies, come to worship, and uh, put a little money in and don't knock anybody in the head during, during the week. But look at those statements on discipleship that talks about losing your life and sacrificing yourself, presenting yourself a living sacrifice to God. In the churches of Christ as a whole, we probably give less than 5% of our income, and we brag about that. We say, hey, God, we're not like those dumb Adventists over there that think they have to give 10% of their income. We're not that foolish. We know that was nailed to the cross. We've got it figured out that 5% or 3% is, is plenty as long as that's all we can give with a, with a good heart. Isn't that what we do? On, on Sunday, you know, we, we, we come to service a couple of times and we run to the ball game and we run to this or that and we're busy seven days a week and God gets none of our time and we stand up and say, hey God, we're not like those people over there that ha think they've got to set aside 24 hours every single solitary week to you. We know we can play ball and, and play games and have a good time and, and use every day to its foolish. No, look at those poor ignorant people over there. How ridiculous. How ridiculous that we must look uh, within Christendom, any 
that look at their discipleship. Discipleship is, is set forth in the New Testament by Paul was a sacrifice of self. It was living your life. Paul said to live is Christ, to die is gain. It was living your life, making all the decisions of your life from the standpoint of what would Christ do. How much would Christ give of my income? How, could, how much if Christ were here with my income in my situation, and he knows about the guy in Mexico that we're supporting, and he knows about the work in Africa and, and the work in the eastern countries and the living situation, and he knows about the third world, uh, could he sit here and spend thousands of dollars putting steeples on buildings and, and building fantastic buildings that we go to three days a week, and, and instead of sending missionaries, uh, hiring youth ministers and youth directors and building gymnasiums, would that be Jesus? Well, yeah, we can look pretty good if we compare ourselves with everything around us because they're just as worldly as we are. Where we will appreciate the need of salvation by grace through faith and the need for our own growth is when we look into God's perfect law and quit looking at our neighbors that are just as weak and just as frail as we are. And when we look in that law, then we wind up feeling bad about ourselves and that's good because that's what we need. We've got nothing here to feel good about. We need to realize that that we come short and we fall short. The law is good, but the fact is no longer that I that do it but sin dwells within me. I know that nothing good. Paul is saying something now. You see what he's saying? As long as you see that that's right and you're dissatisfied with yourself, what you're really saying, the law is good, and Paul said that's great. You fall short, but you've made a great statement before God. You inwardly with your spirit have said, God, I know I fall short, but the very reason I feel bad about it, and I know I fall short, is I'm acknowledging your perfect law. I do not do the good that I want. The evil I do not want is what I do. Now, if I do what I do not want, it's no longer I that do it, but sin that dwells in me. So I find then a law that when I want to do what is good, evil lies close at hand. I delight in the law of God in my inmost self. In other words, in my heart, I say, I, I want to love my neighbor exactly as myself. I, I want to give all I can give to promote the, the teaching of the gospel. I want to help out those that are less fortunate than I am. I want to spend less on myself and more on others. That's what I want. So I delight in my inward heart. But when I look at myself, I don't see that. I see somebody that still needs to spend less on himself and more on others. I, I see somebody that, that needs to be a little less concerned about Paul Cook and a little more concerned about others. And so what I'm doing is that in my inner heart, I'm delighting in the law. I'm saying it's good, it's right. But wretched man that I am, whether my faith is not strong enough, my love is not strong enough, whatever the reason, I can see that I fall short. Wretched man that I am, who will rescue me from this body of death? Can't you just see the answer? Here you are, we've, we've sinned, we fall short, we deserve to die. Here's the plan. Be immersed in water and you're saved. That's great. Get your little group and organize exactly according to these instructions and you're saved. God forbid. How I ever bought into that, I don't even know. A tribute to my own ignorance. Wretched man that I am, who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord, 
So with my mind, I'm a slave to the law of sin, but with my flesh, I'm a slave to the law of sin. A slave to the law of God with my mind, with my flesh, a slave to the law of sin. There is therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. The starting point in understanding salvation in Jesus is the recognition that you and I don't merit anything. And all of these feeble efforts to contrive certain little rules or regulations or physical acts, whether it's ladies who think they're going to be saved because they let their hair grow or they don't wear makeup or they don't wear jewelry, or people that think they're going to be saved because they keep a particular day, or they give a certain percent of their income, or somebody who thinks he's going to be saved because he's organized more accurately than the other fella, or whatever it is. They don't understand salvation. We fall short. And we can't contrive a few little gadgets to then say, hey, Lord, you need to save me because of such and such. We need to reach the point in our thinking where we say, wretched person that I am, thanks be to God, there's no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus. Let me show you what this will do with your mind if you understand it. If you're sitting there as a parent who's, who's made some mistakes in the rearing of your children and they're out living because in a certain way and you know it and it tears your conscience up and it bothers you and, and you can say, hey, I'm not perfect, but nobody else is perfect. I can repent of that sin as well as any other sin and I can be saved and that child that's on drugs, they can repent and be saved too. And it means you can look at any mistake you've made in your life. Adultery, homosexuality, stealing, uh, you got drunk and run over somebody. Whatever blunder you've made in life. He's saying that you don't have to walk through life feeling the burden of all that guilt. Recognize the fact that you're part of the human family. We're all sinners. Repent of your sins. Change your mind. Put your trust in the atonement of Christ. Let him wipe away all the sins that you committed, whether it was with sexual permissiveness, drunkenness, doing drugs, making a miserable life out of your marriage situation, whatever it was. Let God forgive you. And embrace the salvation that you have in Christ Jesus. And experience the peace of mind of being able to live with your trust in Him and a righteousness that will he will impart to you based on your faith in him. There is therefore no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ has set you free, free from the law of sin and death. God has done what the law weakened by the flesh. Notice now, how is the law weak? By my flesh. Okay? When I read in the law, that I ought to be slow to anger. You know, I ought to not to lose my temper and, and say things I ought not to. The law is right, and I can see that's great. But sometimes that law is weakened by my flesh. Sometimes when, when I'm tired, and I've been overextended, and I'm stressed, that I then become anger, angry quicker than I should, and I say things I shouldn't say. And so the law is made weak, not because it's weak, but by my flesh. And, and sometimes we allow ourselves to be put into situations where we are tempted and we give in to the temptation. And so he says, in your mind, delight in God's law. Know that it's right and it's good. Look at it as a guide. 
Feel bad when you deviate. Feel so bad that you want to repent and confess your faults. And be thankful that there's no condemnation in Christ Jesus. He's sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to deal with sin. He condemned in the flesh so that the just requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit. Those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. Those who live according to the spirit set their mind on the things of the spirit. To the mind on the flesh set on the mind set on the flesh is death. But that set on the mind, the mind set on the spirit is life and peace. For this reason, the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit itself to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Notice what Paul's going to go ahead and develop now. Now that you're in Christ, before you were in Christ, you walked around with the flesh doing most of the talking for you. You just did your own thing. Now, your mind's going to be set on the spirit. You're, you're not going to be perfect. But your mind is set on spiritual matters. You love God's law. You're heading in that direction. And he's going to say that don't let sin reign in your body. In other words, you, you're going to have control. You're not going to be a slave of sin. You're not perfect. But you're going to walk through life as somebody who allows the spirit to control and to guide you and is not going through life just pursuing the lust of his own flesh. So they were in Christ, and the journey in Christ is one of spirituality, where as we live day by day, we become more and more and more Christ-like. And what's the goal? Become like Christ, isn't it? That's the goal of the Christian. When you say Christian, you're saying like Christ. And so Christ is there as a goal, and the goal is to become like Him. But all the time that you're growing and maturing and developing, as long as you're in Christ, there is no condemnation to those who believe it's perfect. And we believe it so strongly that when we fall short, we feel bad. And we want to get whatever right that needs to be right. That's in all phases of our work. If we find out tomorrow that there's something about our organization that's different than what is taught in the New Testament, that if we are walking by the Spirit, we're going to feel bad about that. And we, we want to repent and change and, and do it God's way because His way is perfect. And if we find out anything else about our marriage, our, our relationship with our children, our relationship with others, or whatever that we're doing is wrong, then because we're walking by the Spirit, we'll feel bad about that. And we'll want to confess that, acknowledge it, and repent, and, and begin to embrace things in the way that God have, would have us to. And so the key all the way through here is an attitude of heart. The expression physically can never be any better or any more accurate than the attitude of heart. David laid, or Abraham, I should say, we started with him. Abraham made a number of mistakes in his life. He never reached perfection. He never reached a full understanding of the various things that God was even doing through him. But what we do see in Abraham is he made a decision at a point in his life. And from a family background of idolatry and a background of sin, he made a decision in his mind that I'm going to put my trust in God and I'm going to walk with him. He began that journey that was first expressed in his circumcision. And he walks it until the day he dies. And we see him grow and mature and develop. One time he'll lie to save his own hide. But as an old man, Abraham will take his son and be willing to kill him 
and offer him as a sacrifice to God. And God will have to stop him and say, Abraham, I don't want this. And so for the man that would lie to save his hide with a weaker faith to the man that offers his son. So we begin our journey. We reach that point where we've examined the evidence, the information about Jesus. We understand that he was died, that he was buried, he was resurrected, that he gave himself as a sacrifice for our sins. And we begin that journey when we make the decision in our mind to put our trust in that sacrifice and repent of our sins. And we start it when we express that faith by identifying with our Lord in baptism. And so then we embrace him on his terms, express our faith, buried with him, identifying spiritually, recognizing that this physical act pictures a death and a burial and a resurrection to walk in newness of life. And then we begin that walk of faith, knowing that we'll never do it perfectly, knowing we may never know it all, but knowing that we're walking with the right spirit and with an attitude that wants to do it right, and we'll constantly all through life be refining and fine-tuning ourselves and becoming more Christ-like. But all the time, whether you're back here or up there in your faith, thanks be to God, there's no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus. Thanks be to God that you can live and know that you have the remission of your sins and eternal life even though you fall short of the perfection of God's law. Let's conclude our study for this morning. If you're in our audience as one that is not a Christian, you have come to believe in Jesus, we give you the opportunity, if you so desire, to begin that journey in Christ and express your faith by identifying with him in his death, burial, and resurrection in the act of baptism. As together we stand and sing.